been a few weeks, got a lot of things to talk about. I just got to say this so I don't forget, not that I will forget, but it's the most important part of this podcast. I feel like sometimes people have their one big idea, the idea that is the most important thing that they understand, that they want to convey to the world. And I feel like I may have found my idea, the idea that I think is the most important, the biggest idea that I have. And it's a really hard one to convey. Although if you think about historically, people came up with some new ideas that needed like vast mathematical formulas to prove. And then once they were proven, established, tested through experiment, you know, maybe people were like, oh, that idea, that's a good idea, or that's a valid idea. So my idea, I've talked about it before. I'll get into all the regular stuff, New York, Copenhagen, all the things I've been up to, but I just want to start with this idea. And I've talked about it before, but I haven't really fleshed it out exactly. And the idea is that, and, and I've been writing about AI so much, and I don't really care about AI that much. I mean, it's cool, whatever. It'd probably transform things in particular ways, some ways that we don't really anticipate. But the whole grams number versus tree three, and I've written about this, is AI versus the Tao, creation, God, whatever you want to call it. And to understand it, you have to understand those numbers. And I know people already are like, oh, the fucking numbers again. I can't deal with these numbers. I, you know, I can't, you know, my eyes glaze over. And everybody's eyes glaze over. They see some numbers, they see some symbols, and their eyes glaze over. They think, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to make the mental effort to deal with this. And, you know, I think about this. You ever met an enlightened person, a holy person? Some people don't believe that's even a thing. They think that's just, you know, something like the Bible, some new age shit, you know, or whatever, some religious shit. But if you've met an enlightened person or you even understand the concept of an enlightened person, if you read about Zen Buddhism and there's sort of the mind to mind transmission, you know, an enlightened person does the mind to mind transmission to a person who's ready. It has to be a person who's ready. And then that person sees what he sees, so to speak and becomes enlightened too. And I feel like I'm not enlightened. You know, I'm, I have the same flaws everyone else does. I get annoyed, angry, irritable. I'm not always the master of my emotions or even able to detach from outcomes. Or, or But maybe I am enlightened, you know, like everybody, you know, enlightenment may not be that you're totally master of your emotions or always detached from outcomes, but maybe it's just either you are or you're not in the moment, right? There's moments where I'm detached from outcomes where I see my shitty NFBC teams and I'm pissed and then I'm just detached. I'm not detached like I don't care. I'm detached like I suffer the disappointment of it and I'm detached from reaction to it or something in my life isn't going the way that I hoped and I just feel the feeling of it and I'm detached from some sort of reaction despair, despondence, some kind of negative emotion. Instead of that, I just feel it and I'm detached. So maybe I am enlightened at times and you're enlightened at times, but then we forget that we're enlightened and then we revert to all sorts of reactivity, lashing out, pettiness, whatever else we all do um, when our emotions get the best of us. But point is, I'm not enlightened all the time. I'll say that. So I'm not going to transmit mind to mind my state of enlightenment because it's not mine to transmit, at least as of now. Though the more things 
go the way they're going in the world, the more I start to feel like it's enlightenment or bust. You have no other choice. And if you read some works by people who may or may not be enlightened, but at least purportedly are enlightened, they will say that your human life, it's enlightenment or bust that, you know, well, you can do whatever you want with it, but that it's a rare opportunity and you're squandering something big if you're not finding out what's true, enlightenment, truth, reality, you're squandering that if you're just sort of living for pleasure and avoidance and comfort, emotional comfort. It maybe was always enlightenment or bust from the beginning. If you read the story of the Buddha, he's a prince and he has a great life and everything's beautiful and perfect around him. And then he sees someone get sick. He sees someone get old and then he sees someone die. And he realizes even he is not insulated from suffering. And then he resolves to go on the journey that resulted in him becoming the Buddha and embracing the suffering of life that was unavoidable. So I don't know. You know, I look around and I think, what other choice do you have? I mean, things are going the way they're going. You have people pushing for CBDCs and carbon credits and trying to set up environmental tyranny and biomedical tyranny and you know, it can just get you stressed out and avoidant and wanting to have a few drinks and escape. And what else can you do except feel the anxiety about it and just become enlightened? That's, they're pushing you to enlightenment. They're putting selective pressure on people who could live a relatively pleasant life, at least in the short term, and making you become enlightened to deal with this shit. And maybe they're doing you a favor in a roundabout way because... You know, maybe if things were more well run, you might not have this pressure to evolve in the way that you really need to evolve. And there's that whole meme about how uh, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times, hard times make strong men. And so good times, well run societies may, they're great, but same time, it may uh, birth a sense of complacency and weakness that. You could squander your entire life doing, and, and now things are getting worse and there's selective pressure to be stronger. And so, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's lucky to live in, in difficult times and times that are challenging. But anyway, I'm this far afield, but it's, it's all on my mind anyway. The mind-to-mind -mind transmission that I do have to offer, and people don't seem to be interested in it, but that, you know, if you follow this guy, Kapil Gupta, he says, nobody's interested. Nobody wants to receive what he has to say. They may think they want to receive it, but they're not ready to receive it. They're not serious about receiving it. They don't want the truth. Not really. And so he even says, I mean, he's an interesting character because he charges a lot of money for the truth and it makes you wonder, but just taking it at face value, assuming he is the real deal, which I think he is, but you never really know. I don't know. I will talk about the Dalai Lama and what he did with that boy. Let's check that out. It's really disturbing. And I thought the Dalai Lama was the real deal. I really did. Um, so that was kind of disturbing. So who knows, right? You never know about another person. You can only look at the appearances. You can't really know what they are internally. That reminds me of something else, that the AI Turing test is just appearances and it's a category error, but save that for later. But point is that assuming, you know, he's the real deal, he says people mostly don't want it. They don't want to, they don't want what he's offering. And even if they think they want what he's offering and are willing to pay 
the exorbitant price, they probably will be disappointed. They probably shouldn't even get it because it's going to be not received by them. So, you know, I'm not enlightened in that sense. I don't purport to be, except in the way I described earlier. But I feel like I have this mind-to-mind transmission to offer, and I'm going to describe it. It's my big idea. It's the idea, I think, that is just sort of the idea that is the most important one I have. And nobody wants to take the one hour to get into it, to understand it completely, and then to have the same sense of awe that I have from looking into it. And there's no, I'm not, it's disappointing because that's the shit, you know, I can post on COVID or rail on that and people, people understand that. But the most important one, nobody seems to want to understand, but I'm going to try it. I'm just going to try to describe it anyway, because it is my idea. It's the one I think is the most important. So I've been writing about AI. I don't care about AI, as I said, more than the next person. I think it may have a big impact, but it's not, to me, it's cool. It's a cool toy, but it's not that in and of itself, except for what it represents, that fascinating. But the thing is, like, I really kind of feel like I opened my eyes to something and it was by accident. It was by going down these large number of rabbit holes, which is just some weird interest that I had. It had nothing to do with anything practical. And there's this guy, Tony Padilla on number file, number file, P, you know, number P H I L E site. And he did these videos on large numbers and he did them really well. And I don't know the math that he does. He's like a professional mathematician. I'm not nearly, nearly at that stage. I, I barely, I'm trying to relearn calculus because I didn't really, I understood how to do the enough of it to get a C minus in college and a A minus in high school. I should have really paid attention in college, but I was partying and smoking weed all the time. So I was going to fail, but I had to study my ass off to get an 80 on the final. And then I said, fuck that. You know, if I'm going to use college as just sort of a excuse to party for four more years, I, I can't be taking real courses like math. I better take, you know, poli sci and shit like that. But anyway, I'm not a mathematician. So this is not like stuff that you need to have a math degree to understand. It's very, very simple. It's very simple. It's just counting one, two, three, four, five, six. And then realizing that if you want to speed up counting, if you want to grow your numbers faster than counting, you use addition. So instead of counting by ones, addition is counting by threes or fives, five plus five plus five plus five. You're counting by multiples. You're not counting by ones. And then instead of adding five plus five plus five plus five, you just do five times four. Multiplication speeds it up, the number growth past addition. And then instead of doing four times five, you can do four to the fifth power. And now you're speeding it up by exponentiation. And we can go farther from there. Instead of just doing four to the fifth power, you can go four to the fifth, to the fifth, to the fifth, to the fifth in a power tower. And now you're getting incredibly huge numbers. Just three to the three to the three to the three to the three. A power tower of threes, five high, is bigger than a Googleplex. People are like, oh, I don't know what a Googleplex is. You're already losing me. I can't deal with this. A Googleplex is very simple. A Google is a one with 100 zeros. That's a huge number. It's more than the number of atoms in the universe. 10 to the 80, one with 80 zeros is the number of atoms in the universe. A Google is a one with 100 zeros. It's 20 more zeros. It's not 20 times more. It's... <laughs> it's one with 20 zeros times more. One with 12 zeros is what? A trillion. A one with 15 zeros is a quadrillion. One with 18 zeros is a quintillion. So it's a hundred quintillion 
times more than the number of atoms in the universe. That's what a Google is. It's a huge number, but it's only got a hundred zeros. You could write it out in, you know, a minute. You could write out a hundred zeros. But a Googleplex is a one with a Google zeros. So it's not 10 to the 100, it's 10 to the 10 to the 100, 10 to the Google. So that is a very, very big number and you couldn't even write out all the zeros if you put a trillion zeros on every atom in the universe. Literally every atom, there's a quintillion atoms and a grain of salt. If you wrote a trillion zeros and every one of those atoms inside that grain of salt and did it for all the atoms in the universe, not just in the grain of salt, you still couldn't even write out a Googleplex. But three to the three to the three to the three to the three, just a power tower of threes, five high is bigger than a Googleplex. Okay? That's a huge number. Three, power tower of threes, five high. It's called tetration. But as you get beyond titration to the next one, you could have power towers a trillion high. And you can't even imagine what that number is. And then you go to the next level above that, which I can't describe on a radio thing. But imagine it's not just like adding another zero or adding another tower. It's adding another process by which it grows. Remember, addition, multiplication, exponentiation, titration. These are just one step each. And I'm saying we have to go two steps more just to get to the first beginning of Graham's number, G1. And then to get to G2, you have to have the same amount of up processes of the entire number of G1. So remember, just to get from these insane power towers, from counting to these insane power towers, that's like four steps, four or five steps. And now, whatever those numbers represent, which I can't describe in the radio, and you can't write out in the history of the universe, permutations of atoms in the universe, you can't conceive of them, that's how many steps you're taking just to get to the second G2. Okay, so understand that, right? We're not talking about, when we're talking about going from counting to addition to multiplication to exponentiation to titration, that's five steps. I just listed five things. But by the time we get to six, I can't describe it, What even the, the process. I can't describe how big the number is. But we're, they're now saying whatever that number is, how big it is, that's how many steps you have to take. Instead of increasing the number of zeros on the number, which is powers of 10, you're increasing the number of steps up the ladder. And the ladder goes counting, addition, multiplication, exponentiation, tetration. That's five steps into insanity. And they're saying not a million steps, not a trillion steps, not a Googleplex steps, but a number that we can't even imagine, number of steps up the ladder just to get the G2. And G3 has G2 number of steps and G4, blah, 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 until you get to G64. That's Graham's number. I described it. You can understand that. It's not that hard. You can't understand the number. It's too big for your brain to understand. You just can't understand it. But you can understand the process. That's Graham's number. G64 is Graham's number. So this is how a machine would make a giant, giant, giant number. It would say, how do we speed this up? How do we make it bigger? Okay, it's, imagine if you have a machine. And, or imagine you're making something by hand, right? You're, you're sewing sweaters by hand and you make one sweater every 10 minutes. In 30 minutes, you make three sweaters. But then you do it by machine. So the machine makes the sweaters. So the machine makes three sweaters in 30 minutes, just like you. But then you have the machine make three sweaters at a time. So now it makes nine sweaters in 30 minutes. It's making three at a time. But now you decide to make a machine that makes a machine that makes sweater making machines. And then you start to speed it up. 
And this AI, you know, the AI, when it gets super advanced, is going to learn how to learn how to learn how to learn. It's going to learn, and then it's going to say, well, if I learn how to learn, how much faster can I absorb information? And if I improve that process, how much faster can I do that? If I improve that process, it's going to be exponential, and it's going to go up the chain, tetrational, hexational. It's going to go up the, the chain and be super fast. And that's what everyone's terrified of, because once it learns how to learn, once it starts to improve its own processes, improve its own design and improve the design of the design, then we're off to the races. This is Graham's number. This is how Graham's number is built. It is going up the scale of speeding up the building process itself. Ad infinitum, exponentially speeding it up. That's what they're scared of. Humans, when we do things, we, we can kind of add and we can even multiply. But at a certain point, we can't learn how to learn how to learn how to learn ad infinitum. We can't keep speeding that process up. So this is going to be a massive, massive thing if they can do it. And I don't know how far they can do it. And there's a whole separate thing about when it becomes conscious and all this bullshit. And I think that's, I'll talk about that later. But that's the point. That's the machine. Graham's number is the machine. It describes the machine. This is my idea. This is the idea that I think is important. The Graham's number, which is so vast. I hope you understood it. I mean, just take the time to understand it. I wrote about this. I wrote about this in why you don't have to fear AI. I, you know, it's in the Substack. I'll link it to the podcast. I, you know, read it if you're interested. This is the only idea that matters. All this other shit I'm saying, I don't know. Everyone else is saying it one way or the other. So, what's the other one? What's the other one? The other one is Tree Three, and I've talked about this. This is not complicated either. You should watch the videos in the uh, Don't Fear AI. The video of this guy Tony Padilla. He, he explains it amazingly. Amazingly, Tree Three. It's just a game. It's just a simple game. You have dots and lines and together they form trees, little wise, little trees. There's like a, a stalk and there's a, you know, it's just, it's just a game. And the game is how, what's the most trees you can make given a certain set of colors of dots and lines that don't repeat, non-repeating trees, right? So if you make the same tree, game's over. If you can't make an, a new original tree. And he starts out, if you have just black ink and you have a black dot and a black line, that's it. You make a dot with a line and that's the only tree you can make, right? If you, if you try again, it's going to be the exact same tree. So tree of one is one. And if you have two colors, say like a black and a red, there's three different trees you can make. You can make just the black one, just the red one, and then a red and black one. There's nothing else you can do that is original. That, that's it. Tree of two is three. There's, there's no other one you can make. But then when you add a third color, so you have, say, black, red, and green, how many unique trees can you make? And it turns out, you know, he starts doing it. And you should watch the video. It's incredible. It turns out there's all these different trees you can make. And that number, tree three, so tree one is one, tree two is three. And that number, tree three, is so big. And they've proven somehow that I don't really understand how using, I guess, infinite arithmetic, which is the whole thing he goes through. It's finite, but it is so much bigger than Graham's number. Graham's number may as well be zero per Tony Padilla. And that to me is just incredible. You, you have this number that is the biggest number you can build mechanically, mechanistically, that you could even think of. Before I read about this, I couldn't even, I sort of did build one that was sort of like this, that process, but I didn't think to iterate on the arrows the way Graham's number did. I have like three years ago before I understood it, I thought I built a really big number. And actually I built it in like 2013. I sent it to these mathematicians and they were like, laughed at me kind of, they did email me back, but they were like, that's amateur hour. Like there's way, way bigger numbers than this. Anyway, point is that as big as Gramps number is this, this little game, which basically has a few simple rules 
and, and let's let it run, destroys it, annihilates it. And this would be the case if instead of going up to G64, which is Graham's number, you went up to G a Googleplex. So every G60, you'd have G64 arrows, G65 arrows, G66 arrows. Remember, the arrows are just the number of steps going up the process. And we went five steps was like in a number you can't even imagine. And now you're talking about these insane number of steps and then reiterating that. So each number that you get that's even bigger using all the steps, that's how many steps there are in the next number. Even if you went to G Googleplex, even if you went to G of Graham's number, even if you went to G of G of Graham's number, it's zero compared to tree three. And this guy, Tony Padilla in the video that's linked to the article, he maps it out and he says, we can look at functions, fast growing functions and map them out like this speed and then that speed. And then this one's faster than that. And this one's faster than that. And go through the whole hierarchy. And he's like, this one's insane. And this one's the insane of the insane. And he goes through them all. And it's not adding again, zeros or whatever. It's adding whole new processes of speed of growth to these functions. And he says, okay, let's figure out where Graham's number is. He compares it to tree three on this hierarchy and he goes through it and he gets to one that's, you know, not even halfway up the list. And he says, this is about where Graham's number is. It's, it's iterating on the arrows, on the speed of the growth of the function. That's where it's growing. He's like, it's pretty powerful, but this is about it. And he's like, where's tree three on this? Is he's like, is it here? No, it's definitely beyond here. It's beyond here. And he goes through all of these calculations. Watch the video. I'm not doing justice. And he's like, even this one, the last crazy one, he said, it, it, tree three grows faster than that. It is off the scale. It is off the scale to go from one to three to a number that dwarfs Graham's number by such a magnitude, it's impossible for me to even describe, is incredible. This is a game with a dot and a line and saying, how many unique ones can we make? Th this is what happens when you have a few simple rules, a few simple axioms. Things like gravity and speed of light and atomic particles and heat and energy. And all of a sudden you have galaxies and planets and stars and coral reefs and forests and cells, and animal kingdom, and human beings, and the statue of David, and the Sistine Chapel, and architecture, and art. I mean, this is, this is what grew out of a couple of little rules, simple rules, physical laws in the universe. This is what evolved. And I was reading this economics, I guess it's a textbook by this guy, Perb Island, and he quote this uh, French economist from the 19th century. And he says, how is Paris fed? In other words, there's no central authority saying, okay, Jean-Claude, you need to eat steak and you need to eat Brussels sprouts or whatever. It's each person goes to the market, buys the food that he wants, eats the food that he can afford. And farmers produce this food in trucks or with horse, horse and carriage probably shipped it into Paris. And every, the whole city eats and dines with no central authority, but yet it works. It happens every day. People are fed in Paris. How is Paris fed? And it's fed through artificial intelligence. And the artificial intelligence that can, in real time, lightning fast, organize the feeding of an entire city by itself at no extra cost. In fact, it, it saves, <laughs> saves huge amounts of processing power and cost is the market, the free market, right? We don't really have free markets exactly, but the free market, it just distributes goods and services in a way that would be impossible for a central authority to do, for an artificial intelligence to do. Because this is the tree three thinking. This is the simple axioms. The axiom is, hey, I'm hungry this morning. What can I do to get some food? 
Hey, I want to make some money. I'm going to grow some food and sell it because I have some land. Hey, I want to make some money. I'll ship this food in and get paid to do so. Hey, I want to make some money. I'll open a grocery store. I'll open a restaurant. These things are just simple axioms. People want to be paid, be fed. And all of a sudden, Paris feeds itself. Simple axioms, complex emergent systems. This is the AI. This is the ultimate AI. This is the DAO. This is God. Now, free market is just, you know, people fetish, fetishize the free market, libertarians or Austrian economists or whatever. But the free market is just one tiny subset of coral reefs, galaxies, the forests. All of these things are each plant with its incentives, trying to get sun and taking in carbon dioxide, emitting oxygen, doing what they do each worm, each bacterium, everything individually doing what it's instinctually doing, a few simple axioms and this emergent system all of a sudden exists. And that's the AI, that's the DAO. It's been with us forever, we've always had it. And we're never going to, through mechanical means, through Graham's number type means, huge as it is, impressive as it is, compete with creation, with, with the DAO. The DAO is, is tree three. Graham's number is basically zero compared to tree three. So if you understand these two functions, and it just doesn't take that long, it doesn't take that much math. You just got to overcome the uh, glaze over eyes. I don't want to deal with this. It's math. This is the most important idea in the world to me. This is it. This is the idea. It's that you have these two functions and they represent perfectly. You know, the, the idea of mechanical iteration taken to nth level with crazy amounts of power applied to it, even being able to iterate on the speed of iteration. And then you have simple rules. Let's play a game. Let's see what happens. And the, and the latter destroys the former. And so these people are like, what's going to happen when AI is smarter than humans, but it's not going to be smarter than humans. Not really. It's going to be smarter at, you know, things like chess. It, it's going to turn chess into tic-tac-toe maybe, you know, where it's obvious to, to two AIs, you know, what the outcome is, whoever goes first wins or, where, or it's always a draw. It'll figure it out one way or the other. That I, I think will be solved. And some of these other kind of games that are very limited and logical. But in terms of creation, in terms of the, the emergence of complex systems, it might even be able to help. You know, maybe it'll add some efficiencies or something, but it can't compete with the Tao. It can't compete with, you know, whatever you want to call it God, the Tao, nature. I guess I would call it sort of like the force embedded in nature, in the natural world, that whatever that force is, whatever that inclination is that got galaxies and planets and solar systems and organisms and life and human humanity to form the the force that feeds paris the force that that organizes creation that that to me is is the thing that that can't be so that's that's the idea that's it all of this sort of existential threat of ai and all of this sort of and and i think it's a bit of like there there's you know not to get too religious but like there's something biblical in this. And one of the commandments, the 10 commandments was, you know, don't worship false idols. And I feel like AI is the false idol. And it's funny because I did this whole sort of allegorical hypothesis about the antichrist and Elon Musk. And you see Elon Musk being very worried about AI and he wants to create an AI that's devoted to truth because the current AI, the uh, open AI GPT, it's, it's obviously very woke and it's trained on a data set that's, you know, very politically correct. If you ask it about stuff, it's clearly been fed what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in sort of a woke PC data set. And Elon Musk says, look, this is dangerous. I want to create one that's just devoted to truth. But I kind of prefer the PC one because it's 
it's patently false. It's patently wrong. It's, it's patently limited by its biased programming. And we can all look at that and say, this is biased. And even if you, I mean, I have a hard time finding that somebody who truly believes in the woke stuff is, is capable of critical thought because I think critical thought dismantles it pretty quickly. Even someone like that who was capable of critical thought would say, yeah, but this is biased toward my views. Even people who believe in most of that stuff could probably see that it has a certain bias, although maybe not. I don't know. But that's, that's not the important point. The point, point is, the more biased it is, the more flawed it is. And the more flawed it is, the fewer people will worship it as a false idol. But if Elon Musk were able to create an iterative model that was for truth and was right about a lot of things and was actually factually reliable, scientifically reliable, you know, when you search for it, it would say natural immunity is better than vaccine immunity. It is with every single disease we've known. And in fact, the whole principle of a vaccine is to stimulate the immune system to mimic what it would have if it caught the actual disease uh, without having to be infected with the actual disease. If the disease is dangerous, you avoid the actual infection and you get the immunity. But it's never better than recover, having recovered from the natural infection. And everybody knows that. And so something like that, you know, in a truth, AI would, of course, give you that good information that was suppressed and, and lied about before. And pe most people think, well, that's better because the AI is accurate. But it's not better. It's extremely dangerous because then people would be like, no, this is the real thing. This is the truth. This AI is the truth. And he's calling it the truth AI, right? It's the truth. So if you're substituting AI for the truth, no matter how accurate it is in, in many different domains, this is a huge, huge problem when A, the incentives to mess with it on some level, the incentives will be massive once everybody adopts this as truth. You know, when people started Google search, it was like amazing. It was like, oh, I can search for stuff. I don't have to go to the library and look through microfiche to get some old thing. I can actually search for stuff in two seconds. Search is amazing. Oh, we can make money off this. We can serve up ads. We can, and then Google became this money machine. And then they can change elections by burying certain content and promoting certain content. And this is what actually happened. This is what actually happened. It was search. People believed Google. Nobody believes Google anymore. But when they believed it, the incentive was just too enormous to tinker with it. You can't trust truth AI and also truth in the sense that truth is being discovered and, and every scientific revolution has to destroy the prior paradigm. And there are many people invested in a prior paradigm. And they say science advances one funeral at a time. And the idea that there'd be this thing that was the truth and how hard it would be to go against that and how many people would dismiss you because the AI says so. The truth AI, the one that's right about everything, says so. This is very, very dangerous. Oh, the AI is smarter than you. Who are you to have a new idea? Who are you to challenge the consensus? No way. This is incredibly dangerous. Not because it's going to Terminator style kill us, or outsmart us just because people will believe it. Again, it's going to be people worshiping a false idol. I think that's the danger. So anyway, there's, there's a lot caught up in that. And I don't know, I, I, I don't think that just because you're listening to this podcast, you're going to look into it, but I hope you do. Because I do think that once you appreciate the difference between Graham's number and tree three, and every one of you that can understand the content of this podcast can understand these, these functions. I don't really understand tree three. I don't understand how big it is. I understand that it's really, really, really big and I understand how it's explained, but I don't exactly understand the speed of its growth. I can't really wrap my mind around it. I just understand the process and Graham's number. You can't understand how big it is either. It's so big. It's too big for your mind, but you can understand the way in which it's built. 
I don't know. I, to me, this is the most fascinating thing. And it's the, it's, it's why all of man's efforts to build a machine to be, you know, man to play God are going to fail because the control mechanism, the iterative mechanism, the, the way that, that a machine thinks and the way that we train ourselves to think like machines, which is folly actually cannot compete with the natural order of things. And I, I, to me, that is the essence. That is it. Right. And, and you have these Zen koans, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping or all of these sort of illogical logic questions and the, and the master would ask it and the student would meditate on it. And I think, I think the koan is basically like you can't, through your sort of left brain, iterative, logical thinking, grasp the truth, the enormity of the truth. You cannot. So they, they put a, a puzzle that can't be solved that way. And they have you bang your head against the wall in this puzzle until something snaps and you get the insight of that truth that it's not possible to get there that way. And that the way to get there is just the organic functioning of your brain itself not the reasoning portion of your brain, which is really good for simple things like a recipe or a math problem or playing chess. I like to do Sudokus. I'm sort of obsessed with them, but it's very, you know, obviously an AI I can just finish the Sudoku in a millisecond. But for me, it's like good lifting weights. Just like a horse can carry, can transport cargo better than you and a train or an airplane can transport cargo better than you can. It doesn't mean uh, you shouldn't lift weights and strengthen your body. And I like to do the Sudokus and strengthen my brain, my logic skills, even though that stuff is machine stuff. The machines are much better at that kind of a thing. But you just being your brain, your consciousness, it, it can't even come close to the ideas you're capable of, the creativity you're capable of, which doesn't come from reasoning. The, the creativity doesn't come from deductive reasoning or inductive reasoning. It doesn't come from logic from the left brain. It comes, who knows? There's theories that you're like an antenna and ideas are out there and you receive them and you, you get a new insight, but creativity, it comes from somewhere else. And creativity is how new ideas, advancements happen. It's never just this sort of brute force logic. And again, like logic is really valuable in many ways. And maybe when you have the idea that logic helps you implement it, but it's like the, uh, that Peter Thiel book, zero to one, zero to one is an infinite leap. The first idea. And then one to X, one to N is is, you know, sort of just details, refinement. And it's obviously important, but the, the new idea is what, is what advances things. And I saw this um, Terrence McKenna quote, something like, your job is to create new ideas. Your job as a human is to create new ideas. And you can't create them through brute force. And basically the AI is just this giant brute force logic algorithm that can get faster and faster and smarter and smarter in that very narrow way. Naval Ravikant compared it to a, a calculator, but for natural language. Calculator, don't really want to compete with a calculator multiplying two five-digit numbers. Good as you might be at multiplication, you're not going to be faster than the calculator. It's one other piece that I was starting about, you know, Alan Turing, the uh, mathematician and computer scientist from, you know, 100 years ago, basically. He, he had the idea of the Turing test, which is a machine that could pass as a human, like if you were just texting it interrogating it via text, like chat GP3, could you tell that it was a machine or a human? Could you, could you, how often could you pick, could you identify which of the two people you were asking questions was a real human and which one was a, a computer? And that was sort of an important test, you know, like an important milestone for 
artificial intelligence. If you couldn't tell the average human or even a, a smart human who was asking it all sorts of complicated questions, couldn't tell if the person responding were human or a computer, that would be a, a huge leap. But I do think that th there's this, this kind of deeper philosophical question, which is like, well, once you can't tell if it ever got to that point that you couldn't tell if it were a computer or a human, does that make it conscious? And I would say, no, I'd say, you know, if it doesn't have experiences, well, then it's not conscious, even if it's really good at imitating uh, someone who is conscious. And then there's a philosophical question of kind of like, well, if it's having all the same responses, how, you know, how can we, how can we, we don't know what its experience is. You don't know what another human's experience is. You only know your own experience. How can we say that it's not having experience or is consciousness just the set of responses? And I think it, it is a little bit complex that you don't really know if, you know, maybe you just think you're having experiences, but then you got the whole Descartes, I think, therefore I am, you know, whether I'm delusional, whether I'm a brain in a vat, whether I'm just imagining everything, at least it's me imagining. I'm having a sense of myself imagining. I'm having a sense of myself thinking, therefore I must exist. Whereas a computer you could conceive of just being programmed to respond and not have anything. It's just, just electrical circuits. But people could say, well, your brain is just electrical circuits. And so, okay, well, so we're just talking about, do, do we really, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we say what experience is as defined from just a machine able to mimic experience? Or if you could truly mimic human experience, could you be said to have had experience? I think it's kind of obvious that a computer, let's say a bad AI, like one that doesn't pass the Turing test that you're just like, you know, I make a simple Python program that does rock, paper, scissors, and I throw rock and it throws something else. It's responding to my inputs, but we don't think that Python program or my PC running it is conscious. And so just because it gets a lot better at it, so um, I can throw natural language inputs and it can have an output that's just as good as a human. Why would that take a leap in consciousness? Like is consciousness just like the functionality of the thing or is there an actual thing beyond that? I think it's obvious, you know, just that there's a experiential layer of it that, that can, how, when would that come into being? How could that come into being just because the, the program gets slightly, slightly more capable until it's finally capable of, of fooling you, whether it's a program or a person? So I think it's just obvious. Uh, and I think that people are confusing the difficulty of deciding. And I guess it's kind of like, you know, you have these movies about this, but like you have a robot that looks like a human and feels like a human and talks like a human and you have a relationship with it and it, you know, interacts with you. How is it can it not be said to have feelings? Can it even be programmed to say that it has feelings and to say that it's feeling neglected because you didn't pay attention to it? It can say all those things because that would be, it could read you know, literature and understand that's how humans behave. But just because it's better at faking it, so good at faking it that you couldn't even tell, doesn't mean that it's having that experience. And I think that's obvious because if it were bad at it, you could program something that were really bad at it. And we have old robots that are really bad at it you know it's not having experience. And, and so just because it got better at its program just doesn't seem like that would be the spark of consciousness. So to me, that's just kind of obvious. And it's just a category error thinking because it appears to us like this, that it must be like this. And I wrote another piece about the, uh, the midwit meme. And I, I think it's a midwit thing to assume that because something seems like it's conscious, it must be conscious. And it's part of this kind of idea kind of relates to like, you know, the brain in the vat thing. Oh, how do you know you're not a brain in a vat? Or how do you know it's not a simulation, this Elon Musk simulation? Should Elon Musk, and when I say midwit, 
the midwit meme, you know, the IQ meme where there's like the dumb guy, the midwit, and then the smart guy, and the dumb guy and the smart guy agree. And the midwit is the guy who is clueless. They use IQ as the, uh, the bell curve of uh, IQ bell curve as the axis, but it's not really IQ because a lot of people who I would describe as midwits, and I think Elon Musk is often a midwit, might score off the charts at an IQ test. So it's not really IQ. It's more like wisdom understanding. And Wittgenstein said that, you know, things like whether you're a brain in the vat or we're in a simulation, they have no meaning, those, those inquiries, because if there's no possible way to tell, then to say, to posit those things or not means nothing. It's, it doesn't, there's, there's not actual meaning to that sentence. You think it means something because you're assuming you're looking outside the vat and that's what's going on. But if you're a brain that there's no outside the vat, there's no outside. And so it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, you know, to say God created evolution and God created the Tao and the natural forces, or they're just natural forces. That doesn't really change what we can observe. So none of those things mean anything. They, they might mean something to you, but you're not actually making a, a statement that has any bearing on what we can observe at all. So when I'm talking about the Tao or God, I'm talking about the observable forces that you know, that make the free market, that make the coral reefs, that make the forests, not something outside of that. That itself is God, in my opinion. To say there's God outside of that, you can say it or not say it, but it doesn't change anything about what can be observed. And there's no way to ever ascertain it within the observable sphere that we, in which we exist. So to say you're a brain in the vat and you're always in the vat, well, there's nothing you could do to, since you're in the vat, you, you can't ever know whether that exists or not. So you're not even saying anything. It's not a statement one way or the other. That was the Wittgenstein point. But there is this sort of, and I would describe it as sort of midwit thinking where this is like important to say whether you're in a simulation or a vat or whatever. And it's kind of nihilistic because it's, it, it's, you're not saying anything, but what you're sort of betraying is a worldview where, uh, you know, the phenomena, the phenomenal universe is the phenomenal universe one way or the other. But you're trying to say that it doesn't mean anything. That's sort of what you're trying to say. You're not really speaking about anything new that can be proven or disproven but you're putting a sort of a, um, a belief system, a worldview onto it, which is like whatever this thing is inside the universe, which we of course can observe and be in awe of or debate or argue about or discover more about, it's meaningless. It, it's, it's, a, it's a nihilistic viewpoint because it's kind of, you know, I'll get into the Heart Sutra about that. It's a Buddhist text from the seventh century, but it's basically saying that this is all meaningless. The world is meaningless. We could be a brain in the vat. This could all just be fake. It's, it's a nihilistic viewpoint, which isn't nihilism or religion or all these things are not in the observable universe. You can believe whatever you want, but the universe, the phenomena of the universe that we can all discuss, that we all have access to, that is interesting. There's science, there's statements that can be true or false within it. But the things that are outside the observation, whether it's because God's a benign God or because nothing's meaningful and we're in a nihilistic framing, that's just your framing. That has no real meaning in terms of what we can actually discuss. I'm trying to make that clear. So if you have these sort of nihilistic midwits who are saying, like, we could be a brain in the vet, this could be a simulation. And they're basically saying, maybe none of this matters. And then what they do is they say, I'm super intelligent. And I see that we're all just atoms and molecules all the way down and none of this matters. Well, a, a really powerful AI is going to see that because they're going to be smart like me. And, you know, this is the sort of the, the quiet part, but nihilistic like me who just sees a materialist view of the universe. And they're going to say, oh, need more atoms for paper clips. These humans have atoms. These are useful atoms. Let's take these atoms. 
That doesn't seem like intelligence to me. That seems like midwittery, the, the height of midwittery. Oh, they're going to kill us for our atoms. Why? First of all, these people can see that this thing, you know, if they create is going to be so intelligent that we can't even keep up with it. So why would you assume you would know its motives or that atoms would be important to it? Why wouldn't emotions be important to it? Human emotions much more rare than the atoms that we have in our bodies. Maybe it needs to train on our data set of emotions. Maybe it needs to learn from emotions to get even more insight into biological consciousness. If it wants to become conscious, if it did, who knows if it would, maybe it needs some insight. Also, think about this. A bacteria would not discriminate. The lower level of consciousness of something discriminates less and less. So a uh, pathogenic bacteria would kill Albert Einstein the same as it would kill a monkey or a savage, a cannibal. It doesn't care. It doesn't say, oh, well, I don't want to kill Einstein. He's too important to humanity. Bacteria would kill him. You know, a, a lion would eat Michelangelo as soon as, as soon as it would eat a dog. It doesn't really care. Right? It's, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to eat this guy. He's a brilliant artist. He's very important for humanity. A lion's going to eat Michelangelo if it's hungry and it gets too close to him. So the lower the level of intelligence and consciousness, the less it values human life. And the higher the intelligence, you know, the philosopher Leibniz, and this is according to my philosophy professor in college, invented calculus with Isaac Newton. There's some debate who really invented it. But Leibniz was a uh, prolific worker, a philosopher, a mathematician, and by all accounts, a genius. And he believed, at least according to my professor, I couldn't corroborate this online, that it would be wrong to kill a fly because if a man had built a machine as sublime and, and amazing as a fly, if you could build something like that and you destroyed that machine arbitrarily, it would be barbaric because you know, that, this would be a very hard thing to make, to make a fly. And so that you shouldn't kill a fly because this is an incredibly intricate thing that's been made by nature and you shouldn't you know, just arbitrarily kill it. And he's very intelligent. It would take someone intelligent to understand that, the importance of a fly. Whereas things of low intelligence would just kill Michelangelo Einstein without a second thought. So it would seem to me that something with higher intelligence would be more likely to recognize the, the beauty and the order of the atoms that happen to be in a human body, that that's a higher state of order and importance than, oh, let's repurpose this to make more paper clips or whatever, or to you know, whatever mission we have, that the human being would be an incredibly sublime uh, and amazing creation that uh, the AI would, you know, be extremely curious about and, and not want to destroy. And it's not even clear whether it would have wants at all or whether it would even want to survive or care. All these things are just complete midwit speculation. So the idea that this is going to terminate our style, eliminate us, to me is just, uh, it's kind of absurd. It doesn't really make any sense. But back to the, uh, the Heart Sutra, because I think it underlies a lot of this stuff, this brain in the vat and the, oh, we're just in a simulation, which again, those are meaningless statements because they can't be tested because they're outside of the realm of testability in which we can run our tests. And, but they do betray a, a sort of a philosophy of nihilism by the people who posit those things as serious. You know, the people are actually positing that as a serious, well, they're actually saying it seriously as this is like, you know, this, this could be it, you know, and it actually means nothing. He said, there's, there's a text in Mahayana Buddhism called the Heart Sutra of the seventh century. And I'm going to paraphrase it. I remember studying this in college and the, the version we had, I thought was better, but the one I could find online, I put in the column and the first part of it, and it's a long sutra, but there's like a section that's famous and it says form is emptiness. And I think that the midwits, the Elon Musk's 
and the other people that are very terrified of AI, they understand this. And I think we all who had an education understand it. And, and it's, this, is the, this is sort of the, uh, the midwit meme. Form is empty, right? So yeah, like I'm here and the table's in front of me, but the table's made of atoms and molecules, you know, and it's just, and what are inside atoms? Mostly empty space. And so this form that we think is real is just a bunch of cells and molecules and atoms and subatomic particles. And it kind of disappears, right? It's not real. It's just the way we perceive it with our five senses. And we can say this whole form, this whole phenomenal world is, is actually all the way down. We don't even know what's beyond the subatomic particles and quantum physics makes things very nebulous of what reality really is. Okay. We can understand that. But the next line is form is emptiness, but emptiness is emptiness. So what does that mean? So I think this is like where, where the, the midwit meme kind of comes in. So, you know, the, the dumb guy doesn't understand that form is emptiness. He's just dealing with form. Everything's real. Everything is what it appears to be. They trust their, their eyes, their ears, their instincts, because form is form. But the midwit has an education. He realized, no, 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 form's not form. Form's empty. Gender is just a construct. You could be any gender. It doesn't matter what your biology is. You could be any gender. All these things can be dissolved because we know that form is empty. And so the midwit gets that and the simpleton doesn't get it. He takes form at face value. But then what the midwit misses is that emptiness is empty. It's the second part of the heart sutra. So if emptiness is also empty, then the idea that everything's atoms or molecules or subatomic particles or quantum fields or whatever we want to say it is, that too is empty. So I can't say this is atoms, this is cells, gender is a construct. All that shit that I'm saying is itself empty. So while gender is a construct, gender is a construct is a construct. And saying that gender is a construct is a construct is a construct. And it's empty ad infinitum. All this stuff is empty. The idea that these electrochemical things in my brain are giving me these perceptions, that's empty too. So what are you left with, right? So not only can you dissolve the phenomenal world, brain in the vat, it's all a simulation. The idea that it's a simulation is empty. The brain in the vat metaphor is empty. Those things aren't real either. So what, what the hell? It's, it doesn't even mean anything to say it's a simulation. I think it's what Wittgenstein was getting at in some ways too, is that you're left with form. You're just in the world. It doesn't matter whether you call it God's creation or brain in the vat or simulation or evolution or whatever. You're in the world. Whatever concepts you have about it, you're in the world. Emptiness is form. So Form is empty, but emptiness is empty. Therefore, emptiness is form. And we're back in the world, but divorced from our crazy conceptual misunderstandings about it. So the reason the simpleton, who takes form at face value, often ends up agreeing with the sage is because the sage takes the world as it is. He sees it as it is. He sees through the noise to the signal of what actually is. And so the guy trusting his eyes, ears, and instincts is often on the same page as the guy trusting his eyes, ears, and instincts and cutting through all the conceptual bullshit that was confusing him. But the midwit, he sees form as empty and he believes in the brain and the vat and the simulation and all this shit. It doesn't mean anything and doesn't see that that's empty too. So I think a lot of this is just this AI fear is just this sort of projection of you know, the midwit mindset where the, the AI is going to be so smart and it's going to see form as empty but not realize that emptiness is empty. Now, there is some danger with AI. A, that I said, the first one, that you know, uh, a good one is built and it's a false idol that people worship and follow and take as truth. And I think that's a risk. 
just like people following the epidemiologist during COVID or Dr. Fauci during COVID or the CDC, oh, the CDC knows, was very dangerous. And you know, you had communism in the 20th century, which killed, I don't know how many people, tens and tens of millions, maybe hundred million people in communism in the 20th century. You know, that was midwittery run amok. It was people with a simple agenda and optimizing at all costs. And it wrought disaster. So I think there is danger of the AI becoming some sort of false idol and or powerful AI that's sort of midwit run amok or people, you know, just obeying it. Um, so I, I do think it's dangerous in that sense, but I do not for a second think it's going to supplant the natural order of the Tao, the human mind, which is part of the Tao, just like the free market's part of the Tao, just like the coral reefs or, or the Tao or God, whatever word. I don't care what word you want to use. I don't like to use the word God that often because it's, it connotes too much sort of blind religious adherence, people who are, you know, historical conceptions of, of kind of the same, the same category error about things. So I, I like to say the Tao, but God is a perfectly valid way to look at it. I think the people that are religious in a deep way, I think that's, I would assume that's how they see God. And so then it's completely valid to look at God that way. But I'll, I'll go with the Tao for my purposes, but it doesn't really matter. It's the idea of this force, this organizing intelligence in the universe that has, without any input from us, created us and created the things that are just unfathomably vast and sublime that we see in, in the world, like the Amazon forest or you know, Mount Everest or the, the, the galaxies and the similarities between if you zoom in on, a, on the cells of a plant leaf and it sometimes looks like the uh, billions of galaxies from the Hubble telescope that you see. I mean, it's, you know, this the layers upon layers of complexity that are built from whatever the simple axioms are in the universe. Um, all right. So that's that. It took about an hour to get that out of the way. And I just, you know, again, I know most of you won't do it, but I just suggest if you have the time and the inclination, dive into that one about don't fear AI and, and, and watch the videos. That guy... Tony Padilla really explains it. And it's just like, you know, my mind is blown from it. All right. A couple other things, just leave with some lighter fare. Um, I went to Copenhagen, Denmark, and it was really nice. We went there for no reason because Sasha's cousin was supposed to go, but they canceled the trip. We had booked. It was too late to cancel. So we went, took a little trip to Malmo, Sweden. Denmark is uh, really clean. The people are really nice. The food's great. Uh, but it's so expensive. I remember I had 200 grams of steak. That's less than half a pound. It was like 67 bucks. It's like pretty nice restaurant, but not like a Michelin starred restaurant. And, you know, a beer from the draft was 11 bucks and, you know, actually 11 euros, which is like 12 bucks now. Uh, it was, everything was just crazy, crazy expensive. And it was cold. It was like, you know, freezing basically 32 degrees during the day or, you know, 35 degrees during the day. We were wearing coats. Now it's totally warm, 80 degrees in Lisbon. So we, we did that. It was nice. Came back to Lisbon for a couple of days. Then we went to New York for five days, saw family. And that was fine. That was good. I, I feel like New York, when I first got there, I was like, I'm back. I hadn't been there in four years. That's the longest I've ever been without being in New York. Grew up there. And immediately I was connected, you know, doing my jaywalking, talking to all the, the merchants at the farmer's market, the, you know, these New Yorkers and I just, I just felt like, oh yeah, this is where I'm from. This is, this is me. This is my element. And, you know, I went all around the city, but after a few days, I got kind of negative feeling about it. I felt like the people were a bit shell-shocked 
I feel like the people were still traumatized. New York had one of the most draconian lockdown slash restrictions uh, anywhere. And not many people were wearing masks. A few were still outside, but you know, the majority were not. But I just felt like they were all a bit traumatized. It just, Heather didn't agree with me, but I, it just seemed like that to me. And the other thing is I smelled weed everywhere. And you know maybe Venice Beach, where I lived for a while in LA, a lot of weed smell. But New York, it was everywhere. And it wasn't, didn't used to be like that. And I used to like the smell of weed. I used to think, oh, that's a good smell. And I think it was because I associated it with being in you know, high school and like doing something subversive. Or one time in high school, we snuck out and we smoked weed under the stairs across the street from the school. And it's always like this furtive, like you and your boys, like getting high and not wanting to get caught. And it was this kind of fun, rebellious thing. But now, I don't know, it's legal and that rebellion is kind of gone. It just seems like neoliberal cope feels like it's all kind of mainstream now and just feels like a way to soothe anxiety. You take the gummies a lot, you know, I mean, obviously when they're, when you're smelling it, someone's smoking it, which I still kind of prefer. The gummies are really like a very, uh, you know, it's almost like a clinical way to have it, but uh, smell the smell of the smoke. And it just, it just felt like neurosis to me. Like, you know, they were taking uh, Xanax or something. It's the new Xanax just seemed like everybody was like this fearful pothead, you know, that the potheads, the guys I used to know who smoke, a lot of them were the most fearful during COVID. And they used to be subversive and sort of like, I don't give a fuck. I smoke weed, you know, it's illegal, but I smoke it anyway. Um, and now it just seems like it's, it's just part of the, part of the tribe to smoke weed. I don't know. And then maybe that's just my own uh, biased take on it, but I just felt New York was a little scared and it wasn't the same place. I saw like Eric Adams, the mayor, like saying how they're going to track people's credit card purchases of meat. He's a vegan or something. I don't know. Or maybe he's, I don't know if he's really a vegan. It doesn't seem like he's that honest, but I, I feel like they would go for all manner of restrictions. You know, they, they were subjected to a lot of them and, and they seem to go along with it without much resistance. So it's not the place I grew up. It didn't feel like it to me, even though the, all the forms are there, all the beautiful architecture and the neighborhoods and the food was great. And the, and you know, everything's expensive there too. Not quite as expensive as Denmark, but uh, it was expensive. And that's really it. You know, it was, New York was a little depressing. Um, it was good to see family and it's good to, I guess, go back there, connect with it. But I was happy to get out. Lisbon is, at least at, at my age now, it's just way more manageable. It's a city, but it's, it doesn't have, you know, New York you can't compete with New York. I mean, New York, there's restaurants and, th and cool things on every block. Architecture, in my opinion, is still the best in the world. Maybe Paris, and I liked Madrid a lot, but New York, it's just, just if you just look at the, uh, go down every block and the different brownstones and the way they're, you know, the different like little carvings into the, into the stone. And it's amazing. And every random block, you can be, you know, up, uptown in the Upper West Side on 100th Street and West End, and there's amazing brownstones and amazing buildings. And even in the fancy neighborhoods, it's everywhere. There's just like incredible architecture. And, uh, Lisbon doesn't really come close. There's some nice stuff in Lisbon, but it's mostly shit compared to New York. So I'll give it that. It's still the, you know, in some ways the greatest city on earth, but I was, it's a bit depressing to me to go back. Um, there's probably 50 other things going on, different political things, but I guess I'll just leave it there. It's a long podcast. And the most important thing to me is, is the big idea that, and I guess I'll just leave it there till next time.